Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Great of you to find us on another work week starting off Monday, March the 7th. We've got Marcus Kolga on the show from disinfowatch.org, the very latest on the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. The debate about the no-fly zone, some of the less than, you know, less than matterful uh, canceling of elements of Russian culture. They're a bit strange to me. I want to lay that uh, into Marcus's uh, airspace and see what he thinks about that. Erica Eiffel from the Bad and Bitchy podcast. We like our chats on Monday. And Dr. Eric Cam from X University as well about the implications, especially from an energy perspective. And former Toronto Mayor David Miller tackles that as well on the show. We got a good one for you today. Thanks very much for finding us. Toronto Today starts now. I went to the Batman movie last night. I gave it uh, uh, eight Brady stars out of nine and a half for uh, it was really good. I really was compelled by it. Couple, you know, couple parts, right? Two hours, 55 minutes. Eh, new Batman. Yeah, moodier tone. Pretty. You know, he was scowling a lot. The, the, nothing makes the Batman guy, the Bruce Wayne person very happy. No, he's not liked. OK, um, but nonetheless, really enjoyed it. It was uh, I thought Robert Pattinson was fantastic. I thought uh, Zoe Kravitz was amazing. I've loved her in everything she's ever done. She's a phenomenal actress. She's she's Halle Berry before Halle Berry was Halle Berry. She's really good. She, I think Zoe Kravitz is going to win an Oscar someday. She's real good. She won't win it for this. I should point that out. I don't think you can wear a leather cat suit and win uh, Academy Award for Best Actress, but I've been wrong before about those kind of things. So loved it. Loved being back in the theater. Um, the last time I went with my kid was during one of those January, you can't, no, no, you can't have popcorn. You can't. There's no drinks and, and food being. It's just too dangerous. The risk is far too great uh, to you, triple vaccinated person in your 40s. You cannot have pot. No, absolutely not. Oh, my gosh. What would the kids say? And uh, yesterday was not like that. So things were uh, a lot more normalized and a pretty packed theater as well. And I didn't even give it a second thought. And there we go. I want to get to uh, some audio from Good Morning Britain this morning, but I was saying earlier before the uh, about uh, Ukraine, and I thought it's brilliantly put. I hadn't heard anybody say it yet, and I want you to hear it in just a couple minutes from now. But I was thinking over the weekend, made some comments last week on the show where we talked about how much we would defend our own turf and territory, like we're watching Ukraine do. We're watching Ukrainians stay behind learn how to fight, train to fight. There's university students. There's a picture of four of them out on Thursday, maybe early Friday, late Thursday. Um, and th they could be your kids or my kids. They just look like college students. They look like, uh, you know, guys w wandering around um, looking for uh, a McDonald's or a 7-Eleven just to spend like eight bucks at. That's who they look like. And we were arming them. And Ukraine was arming them and training them to fight for their own independence, to cement themselves as, to be honest, legendary figures in pushing back the Russian. You're not fighting nobody. You're fighting the Russian military, the Russian military with all that history. And we're seeing, I think, what actual we've struggled before to find leaders. Right. And I think that's North American wide. I think we can include our American friends in that. And we're seeing what I'd call an epicenter of of adult leadership around President Zelensky. We don't know where he is. We uh, we don't see him on the streets as much anymore. And I understand why the streets aren't safe and nor should they put him out on the streets. He has to be present and he has to be 
you know, validated constantly. And he has to be alive, okay? But he is standing shoulder to shoulder with his fellow citizens in the streets of Kiev, which Kiev, which are are getting uh, how to more battle scarred by the day. Okay, his famous line last weekend: "I need ammunition, not a ride." Meantime, on our shores, I think we raise a few more questions about our leaders per se. I haven't seen uh, Joe Biden talked a lot of good talk last Tuesday night. Had a good State of the Union address. I think most people that I spoke to agreed. Really strong first 11 minutes because it was all about Ukraine and Russia. Some infrastructure stuff that you're like, okay, you know, we've heard this, this, pro- these promises before. Let's make prescription drugs more affordable. Let's improve our health care. Well, you can want to do that. Let's, let's get more guns off the street. Again, you can want to do that. But a lot, of, uh, a lot of those things just haven't materialized as of yet. And I rolled my eyes at the uh, prescription drug thing. But, but Joe Biden said, I'm going to hit Russia with the, the, the they're going to be tough sanctions and rough sanctions. And you're not going to believe how we're going to hit Vladimir Putin. Everybody stands up and cheers. Um, hasn't been happened yet. They're still buying oil from Russia. The United States every day, and that counts today, and that counts yesterday, and that'll count tomorrow unless something happens today, is buying oil nonstop from, uh, from Russia. So you're not really controlling uh, the narrative, and you're not also putting the screws to Vladimir Putin. Uh, oh, we're, well, we're banning some films. He doesn't care about that anymore. He's over that. He's over the fact the Champions League isn't in St. Petersburg uh, on May 28th. He's over the fact that the Russians won't be at the World Juniors in Edmonton in August. He's kind of focused in on war, okay? He's not, he's not terribly concerned if there isn't Russian vodka on the LCBO shelves. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. I'm not saying it's nothing. But if you want to hit them where it hurts, and that's in the wallet to finance this war, those things don't mean anything. Those things don't mean, oh, we're going to send the Paralympic athletes home from Russia and Belarus. Fan-freaking-tastic. How's that impact uh, how the Russian war machine is going to cope over the next week or so? So I thought it was really, really interesting, uh, this point made on Good Morning Britain this morning. And uh, it's from someone who's interviewed Vladimir Putin before. I wanted to play you. It's about 45 seconds, uh, 50 seconds long. And Andrew Marr is a brilliant uh, journalist, professor. He's uh, written in the New York Times. He's taught. He makes a great point about not just leaders that have had nuclear capabilities before. And we have not seen this combination in our lifetime. I'll let him explain it, but I thought it was a really salient point. This is from, um, and by the way, this is from um, Good Morning Britain, but also important to point out that uh, he gets a, a great question followed up by Richard Madeley on the show earlier this morning on ITV. Well, over the last 50 years, we have faced as a country, um, frankly, deranged foreign leaders or people whose mental stability we were unsure about. And we've faced nuclear threats. What we haven't faced before is the two things coming together at once. And that's why this is such a dangerous moment for us and for the world. Do you think that he's quite cynically hiding behind the nuclear umbrella? He know, I mean, if nuclear weapons didn't exist, there's probably little doubt that NATO would have, would have gone in with both boots on and kicked him out of Ukraine. And we have the capability to do that with conventional weaponry uh, and with our troops. But uh, because the bomb does exist, he's, he's basically hiding behind it, isn't he, to do this? Exactly so, Richard. I think the concern here is that he hasn't got many other places to go. I think the economic stranglehold on the Russian economy is brutal and, by all accounts, highly effective. 
Um, he's going to find it very, very hard to keep his country running. They're running out of money. That's Andrew Marr. All that's true. We've had madmen before threaten our very existence, and we've been worried about them. Muammar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, Ahmadinejad in Iran, but they didn't have the bomb. And that's been the biggest factor in this. Does NATO get right in, boots on the ground, and take on Russia? Uh, do we enact a no-fly zone if we're not worried about Russia's nuclear capabilities? I'm not so sure yet. I talked to a lot of people over the no, about the no-fly zone over the weekend. I'm eager to talk to Marcus Kolga about it uh, later on this morning around 7.30. But many people still look and say, that will be seen, and it'll be taken as an outright declaration of war, and you may not necessarily want that with where Putin's state of mind is right now. You might not. And it's uh, it's it's obviously something that they're going to look at and they talk about every day. I think the better play is knocking him in on uh, on on where the on where the uh, on where the oil is and making certain making certain you've got a, a, a point in time where you step in and say we're not buying from you anymore. But Europe's still bankrolling this. And that's a big problem. I know people look and say, my God, the the price of gas has gone up. I filled up on Saturday. I filled up on Sunday. Um, It's not that the sanctions are meaningless right now, but there is not there hasn't been a push to knock down the price of oil. Okay, and part of that is Europe still buying Russian oil on mass. Europe's doing it on a colossal scale. I saw a chart last night and they're buying more this week than they were last week. Why? they figured they could run out of supply at other places. I went to a place Saturday morning and the guy said, we've got no gas. I'm like, when did that happen? He's like 15 minutes ago. Cause the pumps, I put my credit card in the pump. They don't have the pumps blocked off. They still have a number out front, but they ran out of all gas on Saturday morning. I haven't seen that in too many places yet, but this is where Western countries have to step in, restrict Russian energy exports or ban them all together. Um, U S secretary of state, Anthony Blinken did say it yesterday that that might be something they might do. But you know what happens then? Oil prices go up because you think, oh, we won't be able to get Russian oil anymore, so maybe we can't get as much oil, period. There's going to be a great debate and a lot of people wondering if there's other methodology we can use to get oil. And some of that is going to be about domestic production. It has to be. I don't know that I've got a lot of time for it now, but I do want to get a little bit later on uh, in the morning and certainly on tomorrow's show to a great piece in The Atlantic. Um, about individual responsibility versus institutional responsibility about COVID. Craig Spencer uh, is fantastic uh, in The Atlantic, writing the key distinction that helps clarify the path forward on the pandemic. And that's focusing less on what individuals can do and more on what institutions can do. There's still vulnerable people out there. I got you there. Even if they've gotten shots, kids under five can't get vaccinated at all. It's not a high risk group. It's not a high risk group. But uh, our nation, uh, you know, Canada's hospitals and America's hospitals still have their, you know, points in in time of of crises. Okay, no one wants to declare the pandemic over, even if my individual danger ended to me ended. Certainly when I got my second shot, it receded greatly and it completely ended when I got my booster. There's nothing I won't do now. I can't live any other way. I don't want to put you in any danger, but I'm not going to live um, under under the kitchen table for the next three or four months. But he makes the great point that there's a huge distinction um, with what individuals can do and how we've we've got to get back to the point where we get our lives back. Okay, there's people that are going to be more exposed to covid than others. 
We're going to have to test when we feel not well. We're going to have to test when we feel uh, when we're meeting those at high risk for COVID's worst outcomes. The mask that you choose to wear should be higher quality than the one you have been wearing. And you change your behaviors a little bit. But what we've got to move from is I think there's still a blame and shame game going on with people who did everything they were supposed to do, feel confident in their own health, have their three vaccines and are going back to live their lives. And there's people you see them out there and you hear them out there. They don't want to be wrong about this. They'd rather be right about this than have every, you know, every restriction lifted and then nothing happens. How will they walk back everything they've said for the last 18 to 20 months since we've been in the in the midst of this pandemic? The first three or four months, obviously, we're running around not knowing what's what, not knowing how this virus is acquired. So let's make it, a, a, you know, around 18 months. How will they walk back talking about what needs to be done to restrict, uh, you know, to keep our hospitalizations and our ICU numbers lower? Booster uptake needs to pick up among the older generation. Okay. We've only got 65% of people over 65 here that have had a booster. What if employers required them as part of safe return to work protocols? There has to be a lot of uh, a, a lot of moves here that institutions can do. And I'm not talking about mandates. I'm talking about levels of education and, and some urging along the way. But right now, we're not seeing as much of that as we used to. And common sense mitigation measures. What are they? Make air quality a little bit better. Give us some flexibility for sick leave. And you'll have people feel a lot more confident in going back to the workplace and understanding that your employer... Mine does, but not everybody does. Make sure they have your back and make sure your employees have enough paid leave that they don't have to pick between coming into work when they're sick and not getting paid. And these are all the debates we were having last spring. And even in a more vaccinated population, we're still having them. So Admiral Sir Tony Radican, that's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. But when you get knighted, you get knighted. Uh, was on BBC yesterday. Want you to hear this clip on morale when it comes to Russia and uh, and their forces going in against uh, Ukraine here. Uh, he's the chief of the defense staff. He's talking a as well about the Russian convoy. We've seen this convoy just sort of sit there, drone footage. The idea ominously was, well, it's going to march towards Kiev, but either by design, it's not or um, through no fault of, of the convoy operators themselves, it's had a lot of technical problems or they've been asked to stand down. This is what Tony Radican said on uh, BBC yesterday morning. Russia hasn't operated at this scale since the Second World War. And to do what's called combined arms maneuver is incredibly complex and incredibly difficult. And we're seeing Ru Russia failing to do that in a competent fashion. So they were, they were held up north of Kyiv and the forces started to become dislocated. Then you've seen the, the failure of Russia with just some basics in terms of the maintenance of its kit and their kit has been failing. And then at the same time, Russia has been attacked by Ukrainian armed forces and then they, their rear echelon, some of their logistics have been attacked. And now you're seeing that whole convoy stuck it continues to be attacked, and that is impacting on morale. And Russia has got itself into a mess, not just with that convoy, but in the whole of Ukraine. And we need to keep applying the pressure on Russia. 
There's so much video. And you might say, hey, is there any propaganda coming from Ukraine? I don't know if I'd call it propaganda, but I would call it um, it's so there's uh, there are clearly some selective edits to enhance the idea that they're pushing the Russian war machine back. But the numbers are the numbers. And a lot of the video I've seen clearly documents um, some, you know, uh, this is there's so many signs of an unsuccessful invasion. I mean, there's a lot of gray area here. But if you're to mark a checked box, unsuccessful so far, successful so far, there's only one answer uh, for that in particular. And and the admiral documents it right there. He was also asked on the same show, is it only a matter of time until Russia takes over Ukraine? His answer, no, we've seen a Russian invasion that is not going well, but Russia will ratchet up the violence. And we've seen that to a great extent. Very uh, happy and honored to have our next guest on, Marcus Kolga from uh, disinfowatch.org. Do, do I have that right? Do you think the Admiral has that right? That uh, nothing is inevitable right now, but we really haven't seen the full scale of, uh, of Russia step up and sort of fight dirty, if you will. Well, thanks for having me on, Greg. Um, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it does seem that um, Russia was, um, Vladimir Putin was uh, ill-prepared for this, uh, for this action and for this invasion. Um, his forces are grinding down. Um, morale is um, incredibly low amongst Russian soldiers. Let's not forget that these are, uh, you know, 19, 20 year old kids primarily uh, who were told that they were going uh, to uh, engage in exercises. There's, of course, conscription in Russia. So every young Russian male has to has to join the military. They were told they were going on exercises uh, on on Russia's western borders and in Belarus. But instead, now they're uh, engaging in invasion. Um, you know, you have to imagine that these kids would uh, you know, they, first of all, it's not being explained why they should be going into Ukraine. Uh, there are, uh, you know, mass defections happening. Uh, the fact is that they were only given rations mm-hmm. uh, for two to three days on the front. They're they're hungry. They're starving. They're like you said, their tanks are running out of gas. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, logistically and in every single aspect, um, Russia's uh, Russia's invasion is is failing. Um, where it's uh, not failing, you know, Vladimir Putin has told Russian media time and time again over the past few days that things are going to plan, is the uh, humanitarian uh, disaster that is unfolding at the hands of Russian forces. Um, there were images yesterday of Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv, um, beamed in. Uh, this, the city is in, in rubble. It's in ruins. Um, it's the kind of destruction that we haven't seen, never mind just the Second World War, but the First World War. Um, the city is just a, a, a husk, a carcass yeah. of what it once was. Um, and now we're told that Russia had agreed to allow uh, citizens of that city, of Mariupol, to the south, where we don't even know. We don't have information about what happened there, but that city was encircled and besieged for the past few days. Um, they, were, they, they promised to allow refugees to leave. Um, when those refugees started fleeing, uh, Russian forces opened fire on them. These are citizens. These are unarmed citizens, men, women, children, trying to flee the violence. They started shooting at them. Um, the, the one, every single morning we wake up to these images, you think that the crimes from the past day were bad. It just gets worse. They're worse, yeah. And so, you know, I, I think that the Ukrainians definitely have a chance. They're resolved. They are they are fighting back, and they are doing so admirably. admirably. Um, NATO needs to step up its game. Uh, you know, we've heard that the, the U.S. is now considering uh, providing some, some fighter jets to Poland if Poland gives its Russian-built ones to, to the Ukraine pilots who know how to 
fly them. Um, Canada could be doing the same, not with with our jets, obviously, but but certainly with uh, you know anti tank uh, surface to air missiles. We should be working with our allies, whoever has them, send them over, and Canada can replenish uh, the ones that they have. Um, you know, because that's going to make the difference ultimately. Giving. <laughs> Ukrainians the tools to defend themselves, that will turn the tide. I want to get to the debate and the controversy about the no-fly zone in a second, but you document the the destruction of these, the obliteration of these large modern cities back to the Stone Age. That's something even in the summer with Afghanistan. Kabul is a population of almost 5 million people. It's fine. The Taliban just happened to take it over. Kandahar, same things, about the size of Hamilton. It's fine. I I, I think I'm, I'm just at a loss for what, what Putin wants here. Does he want the land and the resources does he want the ukrainians does he not mind that there's going to be two three four million refugees having having fleed like if i own a farm marcus out in uh, outside a major city um and 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 he bombs it what does he want i know he's trying to intimidate me i know he's trying to psychologically damage me but i'm not sure what the is the goal of the land or is it the people or is it the resources well, you know, right now it's quite frankly anyone's guess. I mean, we're we're dealing with clearly someone who is mentally unstable and I would say psychopathic. Um, the wanton just killing of of civilians. Again, you know, these were people who were told that they could flee to safety. There's video of tanks, of soldiers, of missiles targeting these columns, these people who are streaming out of these these cities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Vladimir Putin wants it all. He wants to destroy Ukraine. He wants to destroy it so that it is never able to stand up to him again, just like he does. He's been doing with all of his critics over the past 20 years at different varying degrees. Um, He wants to destroy it. So it's it's completely paralyzed, unable to to succeed or or rise um, so that he can control all of all of Ukraine. That's that's become very clear. Um, He hates the Ukrainian people. Um, just as much as he hates his own people, uh, he wants them destroyed, and uh, and so you know there's there's very little strategic about any of this. Uh, this is someone who simply needs to control everything and is willing to destroy everything around him uh, in order to achieve that control. That's that's where we're at right now. The no-fly zone's got a lot of controversy to it. I listen to these a uh, lot of retired generals, recently retired generals, who say, that's a no-go for me. If we do it, it'll be seen as a declaration of war. And to your point, we, we've yeah. never had, we've got an unmatched um, you know, equation here in that we've got a person, we can, we can document the madman theory, but we've never had somebody in such a position of strength. The U.S. doesn't mind going into Iraq because they know Saddam can't, you know, can't bomb the United States or can't bomb friend NATO targets in, in Western Europe. We know that Putin can and would in this scenario. So there's there's some limitation there. How do you feel about it? Is it something that's coming inevitably or is there is there a reason the generals are saying this, saying that's a provocation for now, for right now, that's that's going too far too fast? You know, look, uh, we need to take into account um Vladimir Putin's mental stability. Uh, that's that's key here. Um, this guy is not thinking rationally. He is not acting rationally, um, and and so and maybe it's a it's all an act. That's also possible. Uh, anything is possible with a former KGB agent. Um, so if you're taking that into account and the fact that his finger is clearly and he's told us this repeatedly over the past two weeks 
that his finger is hovering over that nuclear button. Um, I think you have to be very careful. And, you know, I, you know, I, I can sympathize mm-hmm. with these military planners because, um, you, you know, if, if you give any Vladimir Putin any reason to strike back, whether it's with short range tactical nuclear weapons or with a you know, grand explosion over the Arctic, you know, to send a warning, um, you, you, you have to you have to add that to your calculations when you're when you're when we're considering a no fly zone. I think the best thing that NATO can do right now today is exactly what the U.S. is is doing with Poland. Get those fighter jets into Ukrainian hands. Those Ukrainian pilots are very good. Uh, If they have the tools to fight back and and re-secure that air superiority, um, I think that'll make a huge difference in this war. Getting Mm. our technology, whether it's, um, you know, again, anti-tank weapons, getting surface-to-air missiles to the Ukrainian army, um, that will also make a difference. Um, you know, we're, we have to think of, we have to be very strategic and very careful about how we, um, how we establish a no-fly zone, if that's what we're going to do. Because like I said, any uh, action like that, Vladimir Putin will take that as some sort of a provocation and will use that as a justification to lash out more broadly, whether it's our NATO partners in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, or again, that nuclear option is always there. So we need to be extremely careful. We've, I don't think we've ever, the world has never been in this sort of a situation. Um, and I think our military planners are under stress. And, you know, all of these various different factors make uh, mm-hmm. their job very complicated today. Marcus Kolga, kind enough to join us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Um, disinfowatch.org. Uh, he's uh, CE counsel for, uh, for disinfowatch.org. Um, the taking off, uh, removing the platforming of, of Russian television, RT by Bell and Rogers, um, that it goes to a greater cultural sort of cancellation of a lot of, uh, a lot of cultural things. But for you, were you like, what on earth took so long? Like why, why were we, why were we having a channel, uh, running purely state-based lies and prop we can have debates i think to some extent about fox news we can have debates about some other you know news organizations in other democracies but that we shouldn't have had rt on ever or or certainly not for the last few years yeah you're you're absolutely right channels like fox um present wildly right-wing biased opinions but they are opinions they're held by generally by americans and you know america embraces free speech so there's you know, uh, that's not a, I mean, it's, it's an issue, but it's, you know, it's not a fundamental problem. Unlike RT, uh, which is Russian state media, uh, and it's controlled and owned by them. Um, this has been over the past 15 years, um, you know, unleashing a fire hose of lies, conspiracy theories, uh, and state propaganda at us. And for a lot of that time, they've had an open channel into, uh, millions of Canadian homes through our cable companies, because what Russia did was they paid our cable ca- companies, unlike other channels who get paid by the ca- cable companies to be be broadcast on uh, for the viewers that watch their channels. Russia today was was paying our broadcasters to carry that their signal on on Canadian um, airwaves. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a completely different beast. This is a state-run propaganda channel. And, you know, I've been calling for the past 10, 15 years for the CRTC to take a look at uh, that license and remove it. Um, and thankfully, these large cable companies did that on their own privately uh, uh, over the past few days. Um, and I understand that there's a CRTC hearing actually coming up tomorrow or the next day 
on whether to completely cancel that license. Now, why they're having a hearing, I don't know. The government can issue a, a general order to have it removed. Um, this just gives the Russian ambassador the opportunity to to make some noise and make his case, which I don't think, you know, given what's happening in Ukraine, is completely and utterly inappropriate and, quite frankly, dangerously naive of the CRTC to do. One other problem I should state is that all Russian state media should be pulled from Canadian airwaves. There's Russian language media right now that's continuing to come into Canada. There are portions of the, of the Russian Canadian community who are being radicalized by it. This is also very dangerous. We've seen rising hate crimes, graffiti, yeah. um, violence towards uh, people who have Ukrainian flags on their cars. Um, this is largely due to this Russian state media being uh, being piped into into our country and into those homes. This is something the CRTC, the government, the RCMP mm. and CSIS need to be looking into as well, because it is dangerous. I got about a minute here. Is there anything that goes too far for you? Anything where you've rolled your eyes? You and I have talked about sport before, and it's yeah. one thing to say, okay, you're right. Yeah, they shouldn't have an F1 race, and they shouldn't have the Champions League final. But we've got we've got people calling for like Russian NHL players to be suspended. Is there anything where you're like, wait a minute, like that's that's a bit of a step too far, and it's not going to make a damn bit of difference. It does nothing except uh, except make the war about you as opposed to the Russian and the Ukrainian people. Yeah, look, this, you know, the answer isn't uh, banning Artemi Panarin from playing on the New York Rangers. <laughs> like that's, that's not it. And actually, Panarin is like a, is, is quite critical of Vladimir Putin. But Ovechkin's the obvious one. And I go, no, I don't want to live in a country where, where we, ha- we, we make him draft a, f- a statement that he may not even believe in and say, yeah. OK, now he's on our side. That doesn't do anything for me. No, uh, you know, he's he lives in a in a free country in, in the United States. And, you know, he's he's allowed to express his opinions. Um, you know, I think he's expressed his opinion that he doesn't want any more war, uh, whether he that means, you know, he thinks the Ukrainians are waging that war. I don't know what is um, is quite fear, like raised my eyebrows was the fact that the uh, Washington Capitals banned Ukrainian flags from their from their stadium. That's uh, that's strange. That's bizarre. Um, and that's that sort of thing shouldn't shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. But yeah, banning uh, Russian uh, athletes, uh, professional athletes from playing in our leagues. Uh, there's, that's, that's not going to help anyone. Uh, what we need to be doing is actually talking and communicating with those uh, those athletes uh, and, and getting them on board to try and help uh, end this war to convince Vladimir Putin that it's, that he needs to stop it. That's what we should be doing is reaching out to them instead and, and working with those, especially guys like Artemi Panarin, who, uh, who, who get it. And there are enough of them mm-hmm. out there. Marcus, love our chats. Thanks very much. Great follow on Twitter at Kolga uh, for all the very latest on this. Uh, thank you so much for making the time for our audience. Anytime, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Erica Eiffel Hill Times columnist. What a weird story for a bunch of different reasons. But uh, Brittany Griner is just a, a phenomenal player. And uh, I feel like Trump went over and did this with one of Lonzo Ball's kids. I think he called China because I think one of the ball kids shoplifted oh, or something. Yes. And then Trump was like, let the ball children be. Let LeVar, we don't want LeVar Ball. We're not going to use him in a hostage negotiation. That's the worst thing in the world we could do. But but Trump, like, so Joe Biden, say something about Brittany Griner here. Everybody knows that black people make poor hostages, okay? Come on now. I haven't seen too many movies where that's been documented. I'm trying to remember Argo and whether the U.S. Embassy had, I can't remember now. It's so hard to visualize. You know what? Argo is exactly what I was thinking about. (laughs) 
there are no black people who are in Argo as hostages. Everybody knows that they're not valuable hostages to America. Come on. I just see Ben Affleck with a beard, and that's all I see. And and yes, you're right. A bunch of white people in the in the embassy. I feel like maybe and and not getting and not getting a lot of sun either. Not well, not, like pasty. Not well tanned white people in the Iranian embassy. That's what I visualize when I watch Argo again. It was shot in a different light, maybe. I don't know. Well, I'm just saying that you know the darkest one in Argo was like had a suntan from like Florida. Okay. <laughs> All I know is that. So I I did see this hostage, you know, murmurings. And I thought, eh, because of that reason. But then I thought, eh. But, you know, you have a sort of bargaining chip right there. Like, why wouldn't you use it at the same time? Um, So who knows? We'll see how it goes. But it's so interesting how, you know, in a war between two, or a conflict, I don't know if it's a war yet, between two very, very, <clears throat> what do they call it? Civilized European nations, I think, is like what Western media is calling it. You know, not like those people down there in the Middle East. No, I don't know. think Russia's very civilized. I'm not calling them civilized right now. I mean, I mean, I'm not calling their government civilized. I don't think they're civilized either. But um, it's just interesting how quickly race came into the story of those two, like, Nobody was saying anything, and all of a sudden, all over Twitter was anti-blackness. And I was like, <sighs> Well, I would say, the one kind of gross thing I've seen, and you've probably seen it too, is when, they are, when they're evacuating major cities, the, the accusation, and it seems validated. Again, if we want to call out mainstream media, sometimes fine, but, but mainstream media is validating that they're letting, yeah. they're letting um, you, like, people that look Ukrainian onto the trains and people that don't necessarily, quote-unquote, look Ukrainian, hey, if there's no room for them, there's no room for them. So there's being potentially some bias based on skin color uh, in Ooh. terms of who they let, let out of the major cities. That's, that is happening. That seems to be the case. That's a lot of words to say racism, Greg. <laughs> I like walking around it. <laughs> I'm like, wow. That sentence going to end. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know why I'm laughing because this is literally what I'm going to write about this week. Um, I, I think, I, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, I, what I don't like, in all honesty, with the coverage of this conflict is the binary good bad type of framing that we do all the time. I just think it's so juvenile. You know, lots of there are lots of nuances in life, especially as you get older. Things are gray. So, in other words, this Ukrainians as victims narrative that you know I am not saying that they're not, and I'm not saying that they're not suffering, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be helped. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm talking about is the the way the media and the way politicians have portrayed this is there's a good and there's a bad, and that's it. And this issue of anti-blackness flies is a is a, mm. a fly in the ointment of that because it reminds us that not everything is black and white, 
And it reminds us that this binary way of thinking that we have is destructive. Did we do that? Did we do that also with with Black Lives Matter? Did we do this where it's like every corporation, you got to weigh in. You got to announce if you're neutral, you're complicit. Silence is violence. And and like some people don't need to know if for how the Ford Motor Company or Doritos or Pepsi feels about police brutality and racism. I, I, I think there's a lot of empty gestures about it, right? Look, every time corporate does anything, look at feminism, okay? So we're coming up to International Women's Day tomorrow. And um, I'm looking at, you know, women's rights and how that's been corporatized. And it's literally, we don't even hear the words patriarchy anymore because they've been corporatized out of it. I mean... That's what they do, right? That's what they do. And they take up these mantles mainly because people want change. They want something different. They want accountability and they want justice too and redress. And that's something that has been engineered out of all of our systems. Democracy requires checks and balances to work, right? And what's happening is that when those like accountability doesn't happen. People get upset. They rise up. They get angry. Yeah. Rightly so. And what does corporate do? It takes it. It takes the sting out of it. It, it does this performative act because it actually doesn't want to change anything. What people wanted was a commitment to do better. What we got was a bunch of black squares and statements that so whole Renfrew put out a Black Lives Matter statement, and I'm like, I've been racially profiled more than once at Holt Renfrew. I've been followed in a Holt Renfrew store in Calgary, and you know, and they didn't give a crap. Mm. So for me, it was a slap in the face. Nobody asked for this. That's the other thing. They jumped in because they wanted to wait in. Yeah. Black Lives Matter didn't ask him that. <clears throat> Eric, Eif- Eric Eiffel is our guest from the Hill Times. Just just resetting. Yeah. So is, is any is any of this sort of canceling of Russia? We were talking about it with Marcus Kolga last hour. Any of it uh, eye rolling? You probably saw that story about the International Cat Federation not allowing <laughs> not allowing Russian bred cats. Like I, I I think Putin's got more on his mind than whether the Bolshoi Ballet gets canceled at the London Royal Opera House or there's no Russian no Russian made films at TIFF this fall. I think he's got bigger things bigger fish to fry. Literally, I think this is I think it's stupid. I would just say it's performative again. Right. So okay, you know when I knew something was up, when I thought this was stupid, when FIFA banned them. FIFA doesn't ban anybody. Mm-hmm. FIFA had a whole tournament while a military junta in Argentina was torturing people, okay, for their political beliefs down the street. In 1980, was it 82 or 86? Which, which one? The 80, one in Argentina. Yeah, the Falkland Islands was 82. 82 conflict. Yeah. Okay, so, so, yeah, FIFA had a whole tournament, okay, for 30 days. This when does FIFA ban every anybody? North Korea North Korea played in the 2010 World Cup. They're eligible every go. year. Every year and so is China. And the IOC? Okay. <laughs> like, I know. I don't believe them. That is my point. And the problem is is that you know, now that you've set this stage because I hope that going forward 
Now, whenever there's sort of like this good evil conflict, every corporation is going to have to weigh in now. They set that up for themselves. They could have stayed quiet, but no. They decided that they wanted to weigh in and they wanted to follow the crowd. Okay, fine. So now, and I think that is the important part of all of this. Number one, the hypocrisy. Where are all these cancel culture people? Silent. So cancel culture really isn't a problem as long as it's the person you want to cancel. Right. And and who are we punishing? Um, filmmakers, uh, authors, figure skaters, cats, cat owners. Like cat that's, owners. you know, people who are making uh, uh, vodka. And you know this and I know this. We can't do this with China. If people start to get rid of everything out of their house that was made in China, people aren't going to have a lot of material goods left over. They're not. We, we can do this with Russia. We can't with China. And I'm not equating the conflicts or, or the war. I'm not. But we can't. Great point. What if China invades Taiwan? Then what? Right. Nothing. They, I mean, they're yeah. committing genocide against their people right now. And we shrug our shoulders. We say That's things, but we, we're, not, can't, we're not getting rid of Chinese products or goods. We're not. Exactly. And, you know, I have a problem with immigration. What? No, I talked about immigration last week, didn't I? I can't remember. I feel like I did. <laughs> I did. Okay. Anyway, I talked about immigration and how they're now opening up you know, for refugees. And I'm just like, um, I don't recall this even with Syrian refugees. So again, I hope everybody knows that there is a precedent that's being set that, that is going to be expected to be carried forward for conflicts in non-white countries. And then we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, give me, give me your feel as well for, uh, you know, the, I, you're in Ottawa and the idea of the conservatives um, picking a leader in September, I think it's smart. It gives them through the summer. It gets yeah. them further away from COVID. Do you see anything here with, with talk about uh, Jean Charest um, being a threat to Pierre Polyev? Or do you think this is all just, just Where? circumstance <laughs> like to run the party, to run the party? He's not going to make it west of Timmins. So I don't understand. Right. I understand every time that there is a conservative like leadership opening, his name pops up. And it's the same thing. He's not going to make it out west. Okay. So I can't imagine John Charest in Alberta. No. Come now. Saskatchewan? No. But they're going to um, win those seats anyway, aren't they? No matter who the leader is. Well, you know, people can get apathetic and stay home. Mm, yeah, they that's, could. That's, yeah, that's that's a threat. I don't think that we put enough credence on staying home and not voting as a strategy or as a tactic, right? And it is. Sorry to say, I know, I know, I just ruffled some like democratic feathers, but it is. It's a tactic, and so and. You know, if you're not happy with the leader, you don't have to support the leader, do you? You yeah. don't have to show up. Well, I think we saw that in, in this province with a lot of indifference in the 2018 election. There were people mobilized to vote for whoever the leader would have been. We know this, right? Doug Ford, Patrick mm -hmm. Brown, Christine Elliott, whoever was whoever was in the chair um, and was the Ontario PC leader was becoming the next premier. It was just a matter of by how much. Because right. of the apathy that had overwhelmed liberals. They could not go in and vote for Kathleen Wynne again. They no, refused to. No, no, no. So, well, exactly. And I'm like a, I'm a floater voter. So I wasn't going to vote for her. <laughs> mm -hmm. But question, 
Speaking of which, Christine Elliott isn't running again. What do you think of that? I think she's probably uh, whipped and exhausted. I'm not. I, I I would not endorse the job she's done as Minister of Health, but I would also say <laughs> I think that's a tough portfolio in a government that pledges to cut health. I think Education Minister yeah. is a tough portfolio in a government that says we're going to make some chops for public education. So you 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 know what you're signing up for, but you can't be seen as. You know, you, you can't be seen as pushing against the grain too hard. It's just that's just not how politics works. It's too bad, but it's the truth. Well, that's that's true. We don't have any Joe Mansions here, do we? Really? Oh no, no. And, and if anything, some of them were or, were COVID based. They were the Roman Babers, but then people were like, "Gee, I don't know yet." Like, uh, I, I'm not sure I agree with with all that. Yet, I would say there, there's more conversation now about what we got right and what we got wrong in two years of COVID with. How you know we, we know the lockdowns create conversation a long time ago. Yeah, and the lo- and lockdowns create a ton of inequities. And who suffers yeah. mostly from inequities? Well, you know, yeah. and I know. So yeah. the disenfranchised and and communities of uh, uh, uh you know um of of color and race they do they they just do. I'm I'm going to put this here. What about small businesses? I see what hmm. I see in Ontario in Ottawa here is around the Somerset area. So that's the area between where I live and downtown or one of the areas. What you're seeing along that strip is the closing down of family businesses that have been there forever. And this, you know, that area is a traditionally, I think Vietnamese, especially like area. Yeah. And so what you're seeing instead is vices, alcohol, um, pot shops, right? Lots of them. Yeah. Lots of pot shops. That's a concern. And it's, it's a huge concern because it's indicative of some of, of an economic of economic inequities that are going to be baked into the structure eventually. And it's going to be harder and harder for people to so-called make it up the socioeconomic ladder. Erica Eiffel uh, has her pa- uh, podcast, the uh, Bad and Bitchy podcast, in which you claim not to talk about Ukraine. Do people have to listen all the way through? Or is that true? Yes. Really? Yes. That's it not false true. advertising? Okay. It is true. We don't talk about <laughs> Ukraine. We don't talk about Ukraine. We talk about the State of the Union, and we talk about something in Ontario, something about Doug Ford. I can't remember which one. I got <laughs> <laughs> it was so brilliant, but uh, but it's it's out there in the ether. Uh, check out the Bad and Bitchy podcast with Erica, and she joins us every Monday. It's always great to have you on. I always love our conversations. Thanks very much. Thanks, Greg. You got it. Our next guest uh, is the author of Solved, How the World's Great Cities Are Fixing the Climate Crisis. I wanted to weigh in, uh, him to weigh in on a couple topics uh, with me as well. He's the former mayor of Toronto. He is David Miller. It is, it's great to have you on. You've written a lot about um, the climate crisis. You've written a lot about getting off fossil fuels, more sustainable energy. Are we, are we very much at a, at a rubber meets the road position here when it comes to people saying, well, well we've got to become more independent when it comes to oil and gas? But people like yourself, and I'd say me in my own household, we want to use less oil and gas. So we feel really conflicted right now about these last few weeks. I, uh, morning, Greg. I, I think you're really on to something. From my perspective, the, the comments that you just um, quoted are, are really missing the strategic point. You know, one of the issues with Russia is they're a global power because they control oil and they control most of Europe's natural gas. And if you want to succeed in isolating them, 
the biggest single thing you can do is not give them that market by making sure you don't need nearly as much oil and natural gas. And of course, we can't completely get off oil and natural gas tomorrow, but we could treat uh, the use of natural gas in Europe, for example, on a wartime basis and say, we're going to do everything in our power to really minimize what we need. For example, could you massively move the heating and cooling of buildings in Europe from natural gas to heat pumps over the course of a year or two? And technologically, you could if you treated it like a war. And there's all sorts of things we could do like that. And I think uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine shows that, that from a global strategic perspective, that our failure to address climate change on a timely basis has really serious other consequences. And one of the things we need to do right now is not just find alternate sources of oil, it's to dramatically reduce our dependency on it really quickly. There's a lot of debate, obviously, about the carbon tax. It's going to shoot up to 11.1 cents uh, in April. Uh, again, you know, to get the economy back going, to, we were going to struggle anyway, uh, David, were we, to encourage people to come back to the workplace, to make that 45-minute drive. Now when you're asking them, you're asking them either to take public transit, which you should, or or you're asking them to put gas in at a buck 85 a liter, and when they last came to work, it might have been a buck 20 a liter. These are big asks for households right now. I agree with you. It it takes it it it's a it's a bitter pill to swallow. It needs to be swallowed at some point in time. The great debate would be taking off the carbon tax or at least not raising it in April for a a set limit of time until this crisis uh, is is gone. Well, I I think you know one of my points about the carbon tax all along is that the price of oil moves up and down far more than the carbon tax. So, you know, we've just seen the impact of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia on our uh, gasoline prices, which have risen far more than the, the carbon tax. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. to me, it creates the same point. You know, do we facilitate opportunities for people to not have to use their car uh, uh, as that part of a carbon solution? For example, do you, you know, when things are completely opened up, do we go to hybrid work arrangements? Um, you know, a, a lot of people, certainly uh, my age, Greg, would, would much prefer that. And that means you, you don't have to commute. Do we actually start putting some real money into public transit, certainly in, in, in and around Toronto, to expedite all the plans we have? You know, we've got all sorts of plans to build uh, rapid transit to neighborhoods that don't have it now. Do we put more money into that so those people don't have to drive a car? And I think, you know, those are just a couple of examples along with the heat pumps in Europe. But there are so many things that are possible that we're not doing. And when we hit a crisis, we always say, well, let's solve it in the short term. We need to think about solving it in a way that solves the problem for the long term, particularly given Russia's shown uh, that we really need to stand up to them and find ways not to be dependent on their, their source of fossil fuels. Former Mayor of Toronto, uh, David Miller, joining us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. I'll give you an example. We, we both go to the, uh, uh, the, the TFC opening match on, uh, on Saturday. Great while it lasted. Um, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was fantastic to be there. Um, uh, you know they could have uh, could have defended a little bit better. But I'll give you an example. Let's say let's say I'm coming down from Ajax with three friends, and we would pay about eighty two dollars for four go train tickets. 
logically, we'd say, well, we're going to pay 20 bucks for parking. We'll park in Liberty Village. We'll walk down. And then, you know, we know what we're saving. Does Metrolinks do, especially to, we got to get consumer confidence back to take public transit, first of all, and that it's safe and efficient. But I've always thought with Metrolinks, I've always used that example with going to a Leafs game on a Saturday night. Four buddies, you know, maybe, maybe you want to have a, a pop or two, but that's a that's a huge paying eighty five bucks. We I, I don't know if there's a better way with a group rate. Does Metrolinks have to get more creative, especially with gas prices in the next couple of years to to put more people on those trains? I want to be on that train, but I'm not sure me and my friends want to pay eighty or a hundred bucks. Yeah, well, I, I'm with you there. We have to think very much about the pricing of it. We also have to think on some of the north south lines about service. Um, you know, d- during the week, if you're in Oakville or Oshawa and you work downtown, there's tons of trains. Uh, but if you're on the Richmond Hill line, there's very few and mm-hmm. they're not at a convenient time. And I, I think this is a moment, you know, we've known for years that that service isn't good enough and it's too expensive. This is a moment today when we have to make the decisions and say, look, you know, there's an oil price shock. Uh, Russia's at war. Um, we need to do everything we can to make it easy for people not to have to use uh, natural gas and, uh, and gasoline. And this is one of the things we can do. And once you start thinking that way, you actually have really long-term benefits as well. And that's, you know, it, uh, pointing out that people can come into Toronto for entertainment and, and to see the sports teams at a reasonable cost and, uh, you know, and safer. Um, that's a really mm-hmm. good side benefit. If you start thinking that way, and the world isn't thinking that way, it's saying, what are the really short-term things we can do for more oil? What we should be saying is, let's treat this like a war, too, and make the investments we need right now to dramatically reduce our reliance on it. And we'll we'll help ourselves economically. The air will be cleaner, so we'll have better health outcomes, and we'll also help the climate. It's a win all the way around. I got a couple of minutes here, but you spotted a story last week, and I think this was almost a trademark uh, Friday news dump, but it has to do with the Ontario line using uh, technologies that, that are new, but there used to be a Canadian content requirement uh, with a with a plant up in Thunder Bay. Can you lay out in, in you know, 90 seconds or so for our listeners what happened here and, and where you feel and others feel the provincial government fell down in, in terms of making that commitment to Canadian workers and using Canadian products? Yes, transit procurement for vehicles in Ontario since about 2011. It's, it's 2007, sorry, Greg. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started in Toronto, went to the province. 25% of all content had to be made in Canada, in Ontario. That was a provincial rule. And the result of that was that uh, vehicles for the TTC, for example, for for subways and LRTs and streetcars uh, were made in Thunder Bay. And the province very quietly changed that to 10%. They didn't tell anybody. They didn't have a public debate. They did it in secret. And they did it for the Ontario line, which from the beginning has been some new technology which from a transit perspective makes no sense because you need to build new yards and so forth. You should use what you have, i.e. subways or or LRTs. And this means that the jobs aren't going to be in Ontario. They're going to be somewhere else. And, you know, particularly at this moment when we're spending billions of dollars of public money, that money should create jobs here, should hire workers here. Those workers pay taxes here. It goes back into the system. 
and we all benefit. And I thought it was really shameful. And I know they're ashamed because they did it in secret and hid it until uh, the NDP brought it out in, in question period. And this would have obviously as well, not not just for Northern Ontario, but there's been progress towards, it seems, uh, progress towards getting, uh, you know, more women into this particular workforce, people of color, people in Northern Ontario, uh, First Nations people. And this makes it just harder to hit those targets or, or at least keep that momentum going that was built up. Well, exactly. And the plant is up there, but the suppliers are all around the GTA. Mm-hmm. So this is jobs in our communities that have gone at somebody's stroke of a pen. And I, you know, it's bizarre and it's backwards, particularly this moment post COVID, we should be looking to make public investments here that ensure there's good jobs for our neighbors, good, well-paid jobs um, in an industry that, you know, we're world leaders in uh, the manufacture of parts for cars, uh, for trains, for everything else. And uh, I, I found it really, uh, both outrageous and really sad that, that we're missing this opportunity. And 300 people were laid off in Thunder Bay, by the way, a, a couple of weeks ago. And this is one of the reasons. Yeah. And in a small, uh, there's not, yeah, those opportunities, uh, once they go, they don't come back. David Miller, former Toronto mayor, guest in Toronto today. I love our, our conversations. Thanks very much for making the time for our audience today. Pleasure, Greg. Shiva Siddiqui joins me right now. I saw the Batman at 6 p.m. last night. I really liked it. It was quite I, good. I heard your review a little bit. I liked it. I don't like Edward Cullen as Batman. I'll go ahead and say it. I couldn't stop thinking that he was from Twilight. He's a vampire. I found that he was sullen and moody and brooding, and he gave these one-word answers for the first half of the That's movie. Batman. No, that is that was not Christian Bale as Batman. He is my all-time favorite Batman as Christian Bale. I loved him. I just feel like he was a little too dark. This Batman. I think that's the tone of the, it's more of a moody movie and there's more scowling and, and, yes. uh, silence. And I don't know. I just, I, and I found that it was way too long. Yeah. yeah way too long. Yeah. It's, it's a good 20, there's 20 minutes that I could find that could be spliced out of there. Uh, if you will. By the way, I didn't even recognize, I knew he was the penguin, but isn't yes. Colin Farrell utterly yes. unrecognizable? Nobody yes. would know that was him if you didn't know ahead of time. Oh, I, I saw it in the promo in the theater as they were interviewing the four of them. I'm like, he's in the movie? And then you figure out who he is. He looks nothing like it. He did great. I haven't seen him in a while in anything. So it was good to see him on the screen. I yeah. liked him. And Zoe, Zoe Kravitz, amazing. Smoking hot, first of all. And obviously Lisa Bonnie's daughter. How can you not be? That's right. That's, that's right. She's just amazing. Phenomenal. Yeah, I, I always wanted it to work out with Lenny Kravitz and Lisa Bonet. Didn't last. Everybody did. I mean, and now we want, but now we want Lisa Bonet and um, what's his name? Jason, Jason Momoa. Momoa. We want that. They're back together. They broke up. They're back together. So I were they know. ever married, or were they just a couple? I think they are married. She's. I, I feel like she's been. She. I feel like she uh, has been. Like, I, has she been married two or three times? I think twice. I think to Lenny and now to Jason. I got her. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, married 2017. So they've not divorced. Lenny uh, Kravitz and her were together from 87 to 93. I didn't even think it was that long. I didn't think it was six years that they were together. It felt like problems from the get-go. Did oh, they meet well, while she was on the Cosby show? So they yeah, must have. Denise Huxtable. And she's on a different world when she meets Lenny Kravitz, too. Well, Let's go. No, that was because they needed a spinoff because she got pregnant and, and Bill Cosby didn't want her on the show representing that. Well, so. Bill has high morals and values and ethics. <laughs> and I think at that point, he had every right to say, you got to be more like Rudy and what the, whatever the other kid's name was besides Theo. 
was the middle daughter's name? Tempest Bledsoe. I can't think of her Vanessa. name. Vanessa. Vanessa. Rudy, Vanessa, Denise, and Theo. Four kids. And Sandra. Remember at the end? Oh, my God. Five kids, Bill. And Felicia Rashad. Okay. Um, so you saw, uh, give me this, uh, this Reddit thing that you saw. This is sort okay. of a couple thing. I love this kind of stuff that people actually, uh, have relationship issues. They write like nine paragraphs to ask the <laughs> internet what they should do. Like I've, I've, I've not been that person before. So I came across this Reddit. I really want to know what you think. Okay. I think it's maybe the new way. Maybe it's a sign of what's to come. I don't know. It's about a couple who are married. They split everything financially 50, 50. They both make really good money. And they're supporting themselves down to their mortgage, down to their wedding, down to their vacations. Everything is split 50-50. And they've been married for about two or three years and they want to have a baby. So now this changes things a bit because she's done her research and she's come to him and said, hey, listen, I'm going to miss out on a, on a potentially a year of income. Uh, and she's only going to be, I think she's going to be, she's going to get maybe 50% of her income during that year. So she's come to him and said, if we're doing this, if we're moving forward, uh, I would like you to pay me $50,000 for the time that I'm going to be at home with our baby. Uh, and now he's really conflicted. He doesn't know what to do. He thinks, you know, she might not have any kids with him. If he doesn't pay her this, he feels like a little bit of blackmail on it. What do you think of of this suggestion? And a lot of people are saying that she deserves it. She's been pretty much doing all of the work. She's losing out on her income, on her, you know, potential job growing, you know, growing mm -hmm. in her career and... She wants 50K. Well, it depends what she's going to do with the fit. I mean, isn't she going to put it back into their relationship? Like it's it's like it, if it's a nest egg for something else, like what what would you do? But You're she might not. She might. Maybe she just wants it in her savings. Maybe she wants to invest it. Maybe she's I mean, it's, it sounds like they're both fiscally responsible, but she wants him to pay her to stay home with their baby while he gets to go out and grow his career and, you know, build on his income. She's at home with the baby. And I've never heard of this before, asking, you know, your partner to pay you to stay home with the baby because you're doing the brunt of the work. I wonder I, I wonder if asking the Internet will be uh, as, <laughs> as much of what the move that takes down this marriage as asking for fifty thousand dollars to uh, to become uh, pregnant. Because it's a little bit like when you buy your if I buy my wife a, 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 a not really nice birthday present, but I just put it on our visa. What's it like? It is our money. So, yes. right? Like, and she might be like, oh, don't spend our money on that. We've talked about that before with gifts and trying to come up with the perfect gift. But they don't see it that way. I don't think they see it as our money. I think they're very divided financially. That's why they're both take pride in, you know, putting in the 50-50 for every single thing from their own incomes. I also think it's her financial independence as well. She's going to miss that. And yeah. we all know, especially anybody who's had a baby, the women sacrifice way more than the men. I think that's fair to say. I think that's very fair to say. It's it's a strange one though, in that you would say um, that he he'll get to a certain point in this scenario where, again, he'll be like, "Well, we're just putting the money into our savings, or we're you know, what do you well, like? Are you going to pay off some of our home together with the fifty grand I give you? And if so, why don't I just pay out pay it off myself, or why don't we split it?" 50-50. Like, Maybe is why she wants to blow it. Maybe she wants to go on a vacation with her girlfriends. Who knows? All I know is that when I read this, I went to my husband and said, I've had four <laughs> kids. You owe me $200,000. grand <laughs> seems like a reasonable payment at that point. In 10s and 20s. This isn't going to, don't just, you can't have a 20-year layaway plan. This isn't Leon's or the brick. We're in a relationship here. You can't, 
You can't do that. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We're back with a live show tomorrow on Tuesday between 5.30 and 9 in the morning a.m. Be great to have you in for some of that three and a half hour uh, period of time. And we really appreciate you listening to us here. Feel free to subscribe. Tell a friend about us. And uh, we'll be back with more tomorrow. Thanks again.